Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship sofa and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. I had forgotten to mention last week that I had, yet again, sponsored a movie at the Lost Weekend Film Festival hosted at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia, and did so in the name of Tales to Terrify. I mention this because, like last time, I used my own money, not a nickel of advertiser revenue and certainly not a penny of Patreon contributions to do so. Andy Geyerson is the name of the fellow who organizes the whole thing, and he asked me, Stephen, do you have any preference on the kind of film that you'd like to sponsor? It's a vague sort of question, because at that time, he hadn't even solidified the entire lineup for the weekend. So I said that I was really in the mood for a movie involving cults. Bonus points if it involves some sort of strange magic as well. He said, no problem. You'll be sponsoring a film called Mandy. It's set in the 80s in the Pacific Northwest and stars Nick Cage. He sent me the trailer. I watched it. I wasn't sure what was happening, but it was bizarre, and I liked it. Perfect. Due to the awkward timing of this episode, I'm actually recording right now before the film festival, but this won't air until after it. And since the weekends is when I get most of my podcast work done, the next couple of episodes I hope to record early as well, because I'll be losing that weekend to the film festival. So it might be a while before you hear my thoughts on Mandy. I'm hoping that the festival also screens other movies that may also be our listening audience's alley, as well that I might be able to bring to your attention. A bit later in the year, I'll also be attending a much smaller film festival hosted at the same theater called Psychorama. You've likely correctly presumed from the name that it will be packed with horror movies of all stripes, and I anticipate bringing back plenty of thoughts on those for you as well. In the meantime, we have two stories read by a pair of Alex's for you, children of the night. Liam Hogan is an Oxford physics graduate and award-winning London-based writer. His short story, Anna, appears in Best of British Science Fiction 2016 from Newcon Press and his twisted fantasy collection, Happy Ending Not Guaranteed, is published by Arachne Press. Listen with me to Liam Hogan's The Tasting Menu, which appeared originally in Liars League 2010.
The twins giggled and fluttered the menu cards like fans around their flawless necks. Her ladyship sighed and wondered again what she was doing there. She scanned the crowded room, hoping to see someone to talk to, someone interesting, or at least someone who wasn't so very gauche, so very nouveau. Instead, her eyes fell on their host, Herr von Müller. What on earth was he wearing? Some sort of frock coat. Von Müller caught her gaze and moved swiftly up to her side. Is there anything in particular that catches your fancy, my lady? he inquired. I'm afraid I don't quite understand, she confessed, waving the menu that had been pressed into her hand on arrival. His eyes betrayed his disappointment, and for a moment her ladyship thought that there was something else, some hidden tension before his tight-lipped smile resettled uncomfortably on his thin, pale face. Ah, so my lady was not here when I explained. He stopped abruptly and glanced around the room, lowering his voice. Perhaps, if you would do me the honour, I might speak to you privately? I would love the opportunity to explain my discovery to you in person. Her ladyship stiffened as he took her arm, before allowing him to guide her towards a curtained door. She nodded briefly to the twins to follow, and placed her gloved hand on von Müller's. A discovery, you say? Yes, indeed, von Müller nodded enthusiastically, out in the wilds of Alaska. I was half-starved, and I feared that I would perish amongst the featureless, never-ending woods. But by pure luck, I came across a trapper. I thought he was dead, and he wasn't far off, but his immobility was largely explained by a nearly empty bottle of the cheapest, foulest whisky at his side. Von Müller opened the door and showed her ladyship into a small antechamber containing a couple of plush crimson couches. He handed her a glass and continued his story. Well, I couldn't afford to be choosy, so I bent down and took a sip. The coarse liquid burned the back of my throat, and it was warming, and I could feel life flowing back into me. So one sip led to another, and another, and then I was, I'm afraid to say, gorging myself in a most unrefined manner. Her ladyship smiled. You, von Mueller, surely not. Von Mueller's mirthless grin widened momentarily. She wondered if he knew how uncouth, how vulgar she thought him. He carried on, oblivious to her inner thoughts. Indeed, but when I had had my fill, I found that I could not stand. I went sprawling over the trapper's now lifeless body. I was drunk, utterly, utterly drunk. Her ladyship snapped to attention. Drunk? That's not possible. Von Mueller sat eagerly forward. So I had believed myself. He raised his glass, the red liquid swilling around in it. Nevertheless, it was so. I had discovered that while the most expensive champagnes, the rarest of wines, the finest of brandies, have about as much taste and effect as water on us, the cheapest firewater in the blood of a man... Her ladyship interrupted. Ridiculous. Do you think that I have not in my many years? Von Müller held up a finger. Not just any man, my lady. My experiments, when I returned to civilization, proved that. 
I was at a loss to understand the difference, until I recalled that when the blood had drained from the trapper's face, it left behind a sickly yellow hue. Her ladyship placed her glass on the small coffee table between them. A liver problem, she said thoughtfully. Von Mueller beamed. Indeed, I wish my insight had been so swift. It would have saved me much time and effort. Liver failure, to be precise. The cheap alcohol that he had consumed in such quantities remained unprocessed in his blood, and in its intoxicating form. Her ladyship looked more closely at the menu. Gin, she read. Mm, whiskey. Yes, yes, von Mueller nodded. Different alcohols produce distinctive flavours. Gin in particular. Did you ever taste gin before? Her ladyship shook her head and bent over the stiff printed card. So many things she'd experienced in her long life, and yet the simple mention of one she had not, could not, brought a cold tear to her eye. And these, it says here, sweet, and here, sour. Von Mueller steepled his fingers. Once I had stumbled upon the principle, I looked for other examples, other illnesses of the blood. Diabetics, when given sugary drinks, produce sweet, honey-like blood, whilst in gout, elevated levels of uric acid produce a tart, sour taste. <laughs> he laughed. We tend to avoid the ill, considering them beneath us, focusing instead on the young, the healthy, the virginal. But, like health foods, what is good for us is frequently rather bland. Even more so after a hundred years on the same diet. As she had already surmised, he was a youngster. After the passing of a mere century, there was much that was still novel to him. Perhaps that explained why he was so tiresome. She wondered who had turned him and why. But what about the prices? she asked. Two thousand pounds for whisky? He pulled a long face. My dearest lady, I hope you did not think that these trivial amounts applied to you. You are my distinguished guest. But for everyone else, her ladyship pressed. Von Mueller brushed some imagined piece of lint from his jacket. I would, in all honesty, prefer not to charge at all. But you must understand, what I provide is not easy to come by. The vessels themselves aren't necessarily damaged in the process of grooming them. The fee helps to recuperate the costs involved. But more importantly, it serves to discourage my more hasty guests from gorging themselves. I prefer to see my creations tapped rather than drained. And so I ask that they take just a taste. I see. And after they've had this taste, do you then sell the vessels? Her ladyship queried, amused by his odd turn of phrase. Von Mueller squirmed in his seat. Sell, my lady. I can and do provide them to those who show proper appreciation. Money, certainly, from those with little imagination or power. But I prefer other rewards. Her ladyship's heart sank. He was, then, merely a businessman, and the tainted blood was surely just another gimmick. Oh, it, it might keep her amused for a short while, a decade or two, but in the end, she knew, she'd tire of this as well. She should make her excuses and leave. She flicked a glance in the direction of the twins. 
And if I asked you to groom a couple of vessels for me, what would you suggest? Von Müller looked shocked. <laughs> the folly of youth, thought her ladyship. To associate the twins' fragile and ephemeral beauty with any real value. Von Müller obviously coveted them, but did he not recognise them for what they truly were? Mere status symbols, inconsequential things that would eventually bore him as they had her, even before their fleeting beauty faded. My lady, are you sure? he asked hesitantly. Quite, she asserted. What would it take for them to become sweet and sour? He shook his head vehemently. Alas, that would not be possible, not in any case with any surety, and not without a great deal of time and effort. But perhaps something else? Gin? Her ladyship prompted. No, he hesitated. I was thinking of another, more immediate effect. Certain modern substances, drugs, can change the blood chemistry, the taste. Also, the effects can be reversed, so that... Her ladyship fixed him with a cool gaze. I don't need for it to be reversible. You dangle exotic fruit before me, wetting my appetite, and then each time you disappoint me. Don't tease me. Entertain me. I long to be entertained. And really, I don't mind at all how you achieve it. Von Müller stood stiffly and beckoned the twins to follow him. Very well, my lady. I will need a little time. An hour, perhaps. Would you like to rejoin the party, or order something from the menu? Her ladyship reclined on the couch. No, von Müller, I think I will stay here, and though I do not wish to spoil my appetite, I am rather peckish, perhaps something bland? Von Müller flinched, and her ladyship smiled at his obvious discomfort. Don't worry, Herr von Müller, I will not deprive you of a valued servant. I will merely tap him, unless, of course, you'd rather I didn't. Von Mueller paused at the door and bowed. You are my guest, my lady. Please make yourself at home. An hour later, just as her ladyship was thinking of sending for another servant, a girl, perhaps, Von Mueller reappeared with the twins. She beckoned them to join her on the couch, where they sat trembling. She regarded them with curiosity. So, Von Mueller, what have you cooked up for me? Entertainment, Von Mueller said simply, and perhaps oblivion. Her ladyship froze, sensing danger. Explain, she demanded in an icy voice. Each of your twins now contains a seed of death. One her own, one perhaps yours. Her ladyship licked her lips and looked at each twin in turn. Which is which? Von Mueller shrugged. I do not know, nor do the twins themselves. No one does. One of them has been injected with heparin. It is a fast-acting anticoagulant. One small bite and she will bleed to death. The other has been injected with silver nitrate. It is colourless and odourless and I doubt I have to explain what it would do to you. Her ladyship shuddered and shook her head. So I choose. And if I choose neither, Von Mueller gave a wry smile, then the heparin will fade, and the twin with the silver nitrate 
if exposed to sunlight, may turn a rather fetching shade of greyish-blue, and so you will know which was which. But where would be the fun in that? Indeed. Her ladyship put an arm around the bare shoulder of each twin. What is it you want in return? Von Mueller slid a sheet of parchment and a pen onto the table. Nothing really, but if you would be so kind as to sign this letter, it might avoid a lot of unnecessary unpleasantness later. Her ladyship carefully read the document before scrawling her signature. Perhaps I underestimate you, Herr von Mueller. It is turning out to be a most interesting evening after all. Von Mueller stopped at the door. That is all I ever wished, my lady. Farewell and bon chance. In the corridor, beyond, he took a deep breath and tried to return the pen to his jacket pocket, but his hand was shaking too much to manage it. If her ladyship or any of his other guests realised he was not who he said he was, then this gambit would have failed and his life would be forfeit. He crossed himself at the thought, but it was worth the risk. There was no other way to gain access to such monsters. And if the twins died in the process? If her ladyship took the bait, they would not have died in vain, for where she led, others equally tired of life would surely follow. Perhaps not the nouveau, the new, but he would come up with another strategy for them. Even if it meant going back to the cumbersome ways of his father and his father before him. And if she didn't take the bait? Then he would have to disappear and start over. For even in these darkened corridors in which her ladyship moved, it surely wouldn't be long before both of the twins turned silver blue. That was Liam Hogan's The Tasting Menu, as read by Alex Wineley. Alex lives in a cottage just outside Cambridge where he writes science fiction and narrates stories. His new fridge is bigger than the cottage itself, like a TARDIS, but containing far more calories. Thank you, Alex. Our second story of the night comes to us from A Stroke of Good Luck. As you likely know, Tales to Terrify has a terrific relationship with the Horror Writers Association, and annually we try to air as many of the nominees for Superior Achievement in Short Fiction in the Bram Stoker Awards. The 2017 award went to our friend Lisa Manetti for her story Apocalypse Then, which was read for us by Nicole Doolin in episode 332. We were able to air many of the other stories, but some years there are contractual obligations that do not allow for an author to air every story. Mercedes Yardley's Loving You Darkly was one of those stories. 
However, whoever had the audio rights relinquished them, and now the author has permitted us to air the story. And tonight, you will hear this Bram Stoker Award-nominated story. Let's hear a bit about the author. Mercedes M. Yardley is a whimsical dark fantasist who wears stilettos, red lipstick, and poisonous flowers in her hair. She is the author of Beautiful Sorrows, the Stabby Award-winning Apocalyptic Montessa, and Nuclear Lulu, A Tale of Atomic Love, and... Pretty Little Dead Girls, a novel of murder and whimsy. She recently won the prestigious Bram Stoker Award for her story Little Dead Red and was a Bram Stoker Award nominee for her short story Loving You Darkly, which we'll be hearing tonight. Mercedes lives and creates in Las Vegas. You can reach her at www.abrokenlaptop.com. Link will be in the show notes. Listen with me to Mercedes Yardley's Bram Stoker Award-nominated story, Loving You Darkly, originally appearing in Friction, Issue 8, Summer of 2017. Silva's lover was built of bones she scavenged from the killing fields. A shard of gleaming femur here, a handful of vertebrae there. She held him together with wire and glue and the most charming of ribbons. When she put his jawbone into place, he opened and shut it a few times to make sure it was working correctly. It fit nicely, and he grinned, as skeletons are wont to do. His hollow sockets glowed with something deeper than dark magic. They glowed with love. Thank you, he said, and the clicking of his teeth reminded Silva of wooden puppets dancing around a stage with a fine red curtain. I feel ever so much better. You're welcome, she said, and her voice nearly sounded like Bones itself. I was afraid that perhaps you didn't want to be collected. Maybe you were happier at rest where you were. He shook his head. There was no rest. Only staring at the sky and being eaten by worms. Memories of a thousand lives lived by those who left me. Men and women. But now, it's mostly me. He held out his hand and Silva took it. I do enjoy being simply me. He made himself at home in the hidden burrow where Silva lived. It was deep and dark and sheltered, and his dead eyes saw perfectly in the blackness. When Silva came back the next morning, the skeleton showed her a new dress he was making from scraps and fur. Is that for me? Silva asked, her eyes shining. It wouldn't do me much good now, would it? He asked 
glancing down at his mismatched ribs and pelvis. But a living girl. Ah, loved one. You need something to cover your sack of skin. You look so cold when you return. I would keep you warm in other ways if only I could. Silva smiled, but her lips quivered, and she dashed at her cheeks with the backs of her hands. The skeleton nearly remembered the purpose of water leaking from the eyes, but it was lost with the rest of his memories. He moved on instinct alone, taking a thin bone from his foot and sharpening it into a needle. He took sinew and made a staunch thread, and then he sewed, 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 his needle darting as songs of the old ways fell from his mouth. Which part of you knows those songs? Silva asked, and the skeleton cocked his head, thinking. I think it is my left scapula, he answered. It remembers songs and stories, and a bit about playing music. The fellow who left these bones was a lucky man indeed. He loved to dance. Do you love to dance, small one? I did dance, once. Her smile shook. Before the breeders came, we lived in a home with a great hall, and my father would invite people to the finest balls. I would dance and dance until I was sent to bed, and then I would sneak out onto the staircase in my nightgown and watch the lords and ladies. It was a wonderful thing. Why don't you dance now? The skeleton asked, and Silva looked away sharply. Dance here? In the burrow? It is but an animal's burrow, and I carved it bigger day by day until a human could fit. There's barely room to sit, let alone dance. How silly. He watched her with his missing eyes. He could wait. He could listen. She dug her hands into the packed earth of the burrow. There was a time when I would give anything to dance. The sound of a flute shivered through my soul in a way I can't even describe to you. I dreamed in pirouettes. It sounds lovely, he said. I can imagine you twirling your way to breakfast in the morning. Her lips fluttered into a smile that quickly disappeared. There was room then. And joy. This place is so small, it's nothing but roots and refuse. She kicked a wall and an angry shower of earth fell upon her. She scavenged at night and in the early morning when the breeders were sleeping. Why don't you dance then, under the moon in your too short, tattered gray dress? It was white once, she replied. Beautiful and white, and it fit me perfectly. I was to meet the man I should marry and I wore my best dress. And then what happened? Silva's eyes were lovely. I was in this dress, and my father was beside me. We were walking to the carriage. My shoes were made of linen and silver, and my father wore such a wonderful jacket. He had met my husband-to-be and approved. I was afraid, but he told me that I would soon fall in love with his kindness and his humor. He told me it would be okay. A frown pulled at her mouth. But it wasn't okay. Never again. Part of the skeleton's radius, which had belonged to a gentle, wise woman, told him to put his bony arm around Silva. He did so. There are different levels of okay, he said simply. 
And now you are okay. You're even comfortable. You have a companion who loves you, and you have somebody to love. You are safe while you share your story. Silva stilled her trembling mouth. The ground shook. There was a sound like thunder. Noise that I couldn't comprehend. The breeders played horns. Bugles that confused us. They rode tall beasts that dwarfed our horses by comparison. They set fire to everything they could find. My father... Her father had gone up like a wick, his hair flaming and his legs high-stepping in his fiery coat. His skin popped and ran. He looked like a clown doing a foxtrot. Then he fell. She stared at him, watching his fine shoes char as he kicked and bucked. She remembered dancing with her handsome daddy as a little girl, standing on his shoes and holding his hands as they box-stepped and cha-chawed. He whirled her around, making her laugh, and she realized that he was laughing, too. Deep and free and so utterly happy. I hope you always dance, little bird, he had told her, and she had. Oh, she had. She would dance forever if it would make him laugh like that. But now those fine shoes were burning, singeing away to reveal his vulnerable skin, the flesh curling to reveal the white bones beneath. Silva stared at him in horror, unable to move, only able to scream along with the hunting horns. Around her, men were chopped down like trees. Children were trampled and women stolen and tied to the beasts. I was able to unhook one of the horses from the carriage. I climbed on and rode until the animal was in a lather. Still, it wouldn't stop, its eyes rolling in its head like madness itself. And quite honestly, I don't know if I would have let it stop if it tried. We escaped, and after a few days' walk I found this burrow. And the horse. He knew, seeing as not all his bones were human. A small fragment of something larger had been smoothed down to create one of his arms. I thanked that horse, but soon I ran out of food and he was all I had. You hit him on the head with a rock, if my bones are recalling correctly. Yes. Her voice was unflinching. And then I skinned him with another sharp rock. I ate him and you're making me a dress with some of his skin. I used his hair to tie things together, and his bones to make tools. His jaw helped me dig out some of this burrow. Never have I loved a horse or been so grateful as I was to this one. The horse in the skeleton's soul was pleased, and he told her as much. Her eyes shone when she answered. Thank you. For everything. The next night, he handed her the finished hide dress and it fit well. She kissed him on his ravaged cheek, and if he had had a heart, it would have beat harder. The skeleton began to worry when Silva began to stay out later and later in the mornings. His bones whispered to him about the horrors of the breeders, what she would endure if she didn't make it home before they awoke. You can't be reckless, he said. He had holes in the tips of his fingers where the needles poked and pricked. He was working on some scraps to better cover Silva's feet. They won't kill you right off, but you will eventually die, 
it will be a horrible thing. Tell me, she said and sat down, smoothing her soft dress over her thighs. How much of you was killed by the breeders? I'd say nearly half, in one way or another, he said. He kept his voice matter-of-fact, but a strange light burned in the hollows of his eyes. I was torn apart in so many different ways, some fast, some slow. Always in terror, though, always alone. Even if you're surrounded, death has a way of making you feel alone. She thought of her father and wondered if his fine jacket buttons had burned into his skin as he had died. The women, though, he said, and his voice was haunted bastions and leaves. The women suffered the worst. Tell me, Silva said. She knew what he was going to say but needed to hear it. She would poke at this bruise and commit the pain to memory. It would keep her safe. It would keep her alive. The skeleton took a breath. The woman know what pain is, and fear, and how it feels to shriek for help. They know what it is to be planted with a seed not of their own kind, and to feel it squirm and grow inside of them. He shuddered, and continued mournfully. Monster children, sired by hate and desperation who kill their mothers at birth with their horns and armored plates. Males only, and the only way to carry on their race is to spread the terror, spread the pain. Silva's already pale face went carcass white. You feel that, then? she asked. You feel all that in your bones? Like it has happened to you? He nodded and pointed to one of his crushed ribs. Here, he pointed to two vertebrae, here and here. This one took her own life before the monster could be born. She is at peace now, at long last. She has earned it. Her child, the breeder's spawn, its bones were in the killing fields as well, next to its mother's. It could very well have been a part of me. He turned his dead eyes upon her. I'm afraid if you aren't careful, something like this could be part of you. Silva's stomach roiled and she turned her face to the wall of soil. I will be no breeder sow, Silva vowed. I'm smart and quick. I'm only so long in the killing fields because I have scavenged most of the area. I need to go farther to find food. Very soon, I'm afraid the time will come to move on. When she left that evening, the cold was more than she was prepared for. Her body shivered in the frost as she chuffed and rubbed her thin arms for warmth. She peered at the ground, alit in the moonlight, and saw something shining dully. She dug with her fingers in the hard earth and found a piece of copper wire, something that looked like a broken comb, a button from a soldier's uniform. It had most likely gleamed once buttons on her father's fine jacket had gleamed once. She squirreled this treasure away with others in her collection and went off to the killing fields. Finding little to scavenge, she was there even longer than usual and the imminent threat of having to find a new home filled her with dread. On her way back, a sudden sound made her flatten herself to the frozen ground. It was a groan, 
muffled, but clearly human. She crept closer, not daring to breathe. She saw a crumpled figure of a man, poorly dressed and shivering, sweat dotted his face like a pox. You're sick, she whispered to the man. I have to get you out of here before the breeders find you, she said. Can you walk? He moaned in response. He could walk, barely, and only by leaning heavily on her thin shoulder. She dragged him over the ground, his feet hardly moving. We need to hurry, she urged. One foot in front of the other, come on. The sun was starting to rise in the sky. Silva realized she was shaking, but not from the cold. Faster, she said. Her voice had a pleading quality now. The breeders will be getting up soon. They'll kill us if they find us. They'll kill us. They'll kill us. She remembered stories her father had told her, warnings couched in the form of fairy tales. Good little girls stayed in bed at night and didn't wander the house. They did what their fathers told them. Good little girls obeyed and were safe from the monsters whose long, sharp teeth flashed in the dark. The breeders were only harmless stories then. Please speed up, she begged again, and the sunlight melting the frost and warming the earth was a terrible thing. There were no shadows to hide in, no place to find escape. She thought she heard snorting over the horizon and nearly chittered with fear. What if she dropped him? What if she let him fall to the earth and ran and ran and ran back to the burrow? scurrying inside its wound-like safety. Her muscles started, and the man nearly fell to the ground. No, he said roughly, as if he could sense her thoughts. Perhaps he could. Maybe her sweat stunk of terror and helplessness. Maybe he could read it as the old man at the end of the lane used to be able to read the weather. Don't leave me here. We've come so far. Yes, they had come far but they had so much farther to go. Silva's breathing was coming out in panicked gasps and she tried to calm herself. She turned her attention to the man, who was gritting his teeth to keep from crying out. Delirious, his head turning blindly to the left and right, he muttered to beings Silva couldn't see. But he still fought his way forward, his pinched face determined amidst the pain. She studied the bones pressing sharp against his skin, the way his lips were tinged an unhealthy blue. It had been so long since she had seen another living person, and here one was. He had scars on his face and welts on his hands. Sweat ran into his eyes and he didn't bother to wipe it away. He was everything perfect and broken about being human. Even in her fear, she wanted to run her hands over his arms and legs to assure herself that he truly existed, that he was really alive. She imagined that once he had been a little boy playing with sticks, and then he had been a teenager with a crush. Perhaps he had gone to dances like she had, possibly the very same ones, and they might have spun themselves dizzy under the same stars. Then... That daydreaming teenager had become a man, and now he was nearly a corpse. Her heart, usually knotted down by the grim rope of experience, 
lurched a bit as she wondered about this man's childhood. She had a childhood, too. She had chased butterflies and followed her father around the yard as he showed her beautiful things, like where to find bird nests and how to sit very still so a scared animal would learn to trust her. She always wanted to be worthy of that trust. Silva pictured her father's gentle face and knew what she had to do. If she left this man now, he would surely die. The breeders would find him and rip him apart, his bones snapping like sage. She would be able to hear his screams from inside her burrow as they rose higher and higher until they were finally cut off. She'd hear the breeders feasting on the last bits of his body, chunks of flesh hanging from their jaws. And the next time she dared to scavenge, she'd find pieces of him in the moonlight. Would she recognize his face then, she wondered? Would she squat over what was left of his body, picking over his remains to find something useful? The thought sickened her. Okay, she agreed, and shielded her eyes against the dawn. I won't let you go. I couldn't anyway, even if I tried, it isn't who I am. She was growing weaker, her strength taxed by his large body. She heard wild bugles off in the distance. They're here! She tried to run, pulling the man with her. They were close to the burrow, but she was afraid the long-legged beasts would arrive before they could reach it. Her feet scrabbled against the earth and her breath was coming harder. Please, oh please, oh please! He was trying. Bless him. He bled heavily from a wound in his side, but he moved his exhausted muscles as fast as he could. But she was afraid it wouldn't be enough. Suddenly, the skeleton was at their side. You're cutting it close, Silva, he said, grabbing the stranger with his mismatched hands. It's going to be a tight fit. The skeleton was surprisingly strong, fueled by the people and parts that comprised his body. Silva nearly wept with relief as he helped her drag the stranger down into the burrow. They pulled the pieces of wood that served as a door over the opening and hid quietly. I can hear them, Silva whispered, and the skeleton put a bony finger to her lips. Sleep, he commanded, and she nodded, curling herself into the smallest ball she could. The skeleton wrapped his ribbons around her and consoled her as she wept in her sleep. The stranger was a horse trader named Eamon. He had been married. He had been happy, once. The breeders, Silva asked. The breeders, he replied. Took everything. My wife, my son. It's been nearly six months now, I think. Back when the sun was hot and the ground felt like fire. What were you doing in the killing fields? The skeleton asked. He had already stitched up Eamon's side and was now repairing Eamon's clothes as best he could. He took a ribbon from his joints and threaded it through as a belt for Eamon. I was at the killing fields to kill, of course. I'm hunting the breeders. Silva started. Why would you do that? Hunt the breeders? They cannot be killed. Eamon stretched out his aching muscles. They can and they will, but only if somebody steps up. Somebody needs to fight back and show others it can be done. You can't, Silva exclaimed. It's suicide. 
It's madness. Doesn't matter to me much, Eamon said. I'd rather go out fighting than curl up and wait for death. Wasting away isn't for me. Sorry, miss, he said, and tipped an invisible hat to Silva. Not to imply that's what you're doing. It is not what I'm doing, Silva told him. Her fists were clenched so tightly her bones hurt. I'm living. I'm surviving, and it takes strength to do it when it's bleak, I'll have you know. So much easier to give up and walk into your death, isn't it? Then she left, up and out of the burrow, her footsteps stomping the ground above. Eamon sighed. That one has fire. The skeleton shrugged, and his joints chimed together like bells. She does. She'll make it, you know, if she's careful. If she doesn't lose her temper and forget how to be cautious. Eamon eyed him. And you? What are you to her exactly? The skeleton grinned a perfect, hollow grin, and the lights in his eyes danced weirdly. I'm all things to her. Everything she needs. She built me herself, you know. Picked up my parts and strung them together. I imagine I was time-consuming. She adorned me with feathers and glass beads and the tiny beauties that she finds in the fields. So much better than being found all in one piece. A chunk of meat, don't you think? Eamon smiled at that, but it faded quickly. I appreciate all you've done for me. I would have surely died out there if you hadn't let me stay with you these past few weeks. But my plan doesn't change. I need to slip into the breeders' tents and destroy them. Take down as many as I can before they kill me. Rest up another day, then, the skeleton advised. He pulled a bone from his ankle and handed it to Eamon. Stick this in that pot of water. We'll build a fire. That's a bone from a pig, and there's still some good marrow in there. The bone broth will give you and Silva strength. While it's stealing from you, I imagine. The skeleton shrugged. It doesn't matter much, does it? The worst comes to worst, I can always be rebuilt. This is a land of death. There's no shortage of bones around. Silva came back early, before the sun even had a chance to blush the landscape. The skeleton sighed in relief. Silva smiled at him and adjusted one of his ribbons. Thank you, he said. I hardly noticed that it was getting a bit loose. I can't have you falling apart on me, she told him. Then what would I do? She shifted her eyes to Eamon and nervously straightened her skirts. The skeleton reached out and took her hand. She squeezed back. I'm sorry, she told Eamon, dropping her eyes to the ground. Her cheeks were flushed, although she couldn't tell if it was from the outside air or from the apology. I don't mean to tell you what to do with your life, she said. I can imagine your anger at losing your family. I think of my father every day. She went silent, shuffling her feet uncomfortably until the skeleton's touch encouraged her. Then she spoke quickly. But do you have to go? We struggled so hard to survive and you're tossing everything away. Can't you stay? Is it really so bad here with us? Eamon put his hand on her cheek. His skin was warm, flowing with blood, barely singing with life, and Silva closed her eyes and leaned into it. This was the reason right here. Skin touching skin, 
sharing breath, sharing space. This togetherness, this bit of humanity was what she had clung to and fought for, and now it was being ripped away again. The skeleton pulled his hand from Silva's and touched his own dead cheek. There was no song, no music of the living. His eyes hungrily ate up the life that Silva and Eamon shared, and he pulled himself farther away so as not to intrude. He would be there to wrap his wired bones around her when she needed him later. The dead were always patient. I can't, Eamon said, and Silva's tears were hot on his skin. This was what it was to be human as well. Pain and feeling and tenderness disappointment and grief. His own eyes burned and he leaned forward to touch his forehead against hers, as he used to do with his small son. Families are worth fighting for, he whispered and she nodded. We shouldn't be hiding and alone. We should be with those we love, free. I have to do something. I understand, she said and tried to smile. Her tears betrayed her, running down her face like the disloyal things they were. She wiped them away. I do, but, oh, she said, and she leaned against him, letting her head rest on his shoulder. I'm going to miss you. He smiled his chipped grin. And I you, both of you, very much. It felt good to belong again. They sat this way for a long time, not saying anything but listening to the sounds of their living bodies. Breath, flesh, heartbeats. The skeleton moved quietly, ladling bone meal broth into chipped bowls. He watched them sip, and Eamon sharpened his knife with a rock until its edge was cruel and delicious. Tell me about life in better times, the skeleton said. Tell me how it will feel to fight. To dance. To die. To do all of the things that will finally make you free. Silva looked at him. Do you really believe we'll ever find freedom? Death is its own kind of freedom, he said simply, and his mismatched bones rattled. Night came far too soon. Silva glanced at the moon and cursed its treachery. Her friends stood beside her, otherworldly in the firelight's strange glow. It cast the most peculiar of shadows, elongating Eamon and Silva's thin bodies while twisting the skeleton's outline. His bones left hollow stripes of death on Eamon's face. Silva shivered. Eamon removed his worn coat and wrapped it around her. I won't need it, he said simply, and Silva shut her eyes briefly as she tried to breathe. She tried to say thank you, but could only manage to hold the coat to her gaunt body. I need to go, Eamon said. I need to get to the breeders' tents while they're still asleep. I'll cause more damage that way. The night sky was full of stars, and Silva knew Eamon's soul would join them soon. Do I just stand here and listen to you die, then? she asked. I would hope you do something to remember me, Eamon answered. He kissed her forehead and then held her close, skin and bone and heart and blood. Silva felt their hearts beat together, 
like a long-practiced dance. Eamon pulled back, and Silva's heart beat alone. Eamon pulled a hide-wrapped object from his pocket and handed it to the skeleton. This is for you to open later. Don't forget me, Eamon said, and the skeleton grinned his unholy grin. He turned and headed toward the breeder's camp without looking back. Silva watched him until he disappeared, until she was squinting so hard to see him that her head ached. In case he had second thoughts. In case he turned back, or decided that striding to his death was foolish, or realized that he should take her with him. Two can die just as gloriously as one. He's gone, the skeleton said softly. His voice was simply wind without his larynx. It was loss. Silva stamped her feet in the cold. I'm going to scavenge for a while, she said, and disappeared into the mist. She looked lackadaisical and found nothing. The earth yielded no treasures. She thought perhaps she'd never find anything of value ever again. She picked her way carefully through the killing fields, her feet wrapped in hides. She remembered how heavy Eamon had been as she had dragged him back to her burrow, how she had almost put him down then. It was so much more difficult to let him go now. Silva almost laughed at the thought. The coat he'd given her smelled like him. It smelled alive. That's when she finally let her tears come. Deep within the midnight hours, her ears picked up a resonance in the dark. It was a rhythmic, steady sound, underscored by the panicked shrieking of beasts. The breeder's drums. Boom. 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 Without thinking, she matched her pace to the rhythm, her feet coming down in slow, heavy steps. They had discovered Eamon in the village. What was he doing now? She thought of him with his killing knife, so sharp that the blade would register as ice rather than pain. She took a step forward and feigned stabbing a beast. Perhaps Eamon did the same thing. The drums began playing with more urgency, faster, and faster. Silva spun on one foot, kicking at the imaginary breeder that Eamon faced. She imagined the shine of his knife as it arced to its target, buried to the hilt in hide and fur and blood. The drums thrummed through her soul like the music of her childhood, and Silva matched it. Her pace picked up. She threw a kick high in the air and felt the imaginary breeder tumble to the ground. Her stoniness tumbled with him. The desperation to survive, the stress and hate and misery fell from her like armor. The hunting bugles broke out, a hysterical cry against the ambiance of the drums, and she knew Eamon was doing damage, living his revenge, hurting those who had hurt so many. She helped him. Silva swayed and danced and spun to the music, throwing her arms in the air and celebrating. She had never danced so hard before and never felt the music deep in her bones like this before. She had never felt so free. The bugles subsided and the drums eventually stopped. Silva paused, her breast heaving and her cheeks colored with the healthy rose of sorrow and joy. This was life.
This was exactly what living felt like. She slid down into the burrow. It is done, she said, and her eyes were strangely tearless. She breathed in a lungful of air and it felt good. He is dead. She took off Eamon's coat and folded it carefully. She couldn't quite put it down, but held it in her lap, her fingers twisting in the fabric. Yes, the skeleton agreed. He is dead, and he did this dark thing for love. Love is often a dark thing, she said, and reached for his bony hand. His fingers wrapped around hers in the familiar way that nearly made everything all right. They sat together in silence, staring at the fire. The burrow now seemed far too large. The skeleton spoke. There is one thing I wanted to show you. He gave me this before he left. What is it? The skeleton unwrapped the package and showed Silva what was inside. She gasped, and her hands flew to her mouth. It was a finger. Could it really be? She breathed. The skeleton grinned at her as only he could. It is. All of that knife sharpening wasn't for the breeders alone. Silva's eyes widened in horror and understanding. The skeleton patted her shoulder gently. Let me just get it down to bone and I have the perfect place for it. I'd like it close to my heart. You will be with us. Always. Silva reached out and held the precious gift wrapped in skins. Can you fill anything of him yet? She asked. Did you... You know, when he... The skeleton's grin widened. I felt his joy. That's what it was, Silva. Not rage, but a certain kind of happiness. He fought to the music of the drums, and in the back of the mind he saw his wife, his child, his parents, and the girl who saved his life in the killing fields. He hoped he could return the favor and save her. Silva thought of her dance under the moon. She had only saved his life, but Eamon had saved the most beautiful and wild parts of her soul. The firelight danced on the walls of the burrow. When the skeleton patted her hand in his gentle way, his bones were warmed through. She had pieced him together, bit by bit, from refuse and remains of the dead, but he had become so much more. When this land is picked clean and the breeders are forced to abandon the killing fields, we too will leave for someplace better. Somewhere you can dance every day, and not just for weddings and funerals. Does that sound good to you, my Silva? Yes, it does, she answered, returning his wide smile. She pillowed Eamon's coat under her head and watched the skeleton tin to the precious sliver of bone wrapped in hides. When she fell asleep, she had only the most beautiful of dreams.
That was Mercedes Yardley's Loving You Darkly as read by Alex Ford. When Alex isn't rocking around the nation in her band Ford Theater Reunion, she's holed up in her guest room following a different passion, recording audiobooks and editing manuscripts. An avid reader and writer, she delights in helping people bring their creativity to life. You can check out her exploits, Mystery Bruises, and A Most Handsome Cat on Facebook or Instagram. Links will be in the show notes. Thank you, Alex. That'll be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on wherever you happen to find our podcast. Our show was produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.